Well, good morning, everyone, again. Joy to be back with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Stephen Musler. I'm uh, here to serve you in the Word this morning, and it's a joy for me to do that. I'm here with my wife, Tanya, and uh, we are from the other side of the Burubos curtain called Pretoria, and uh, we're happy to be here. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 15, Psalm 15, and we're going to look at the at the whole of this wonderful psalm today, Psalm 15. Now, in the, in the city of London, you, you have what's called Buckingham Palace. You all know where Buckingham Palace is? And it's one of the royal residences of the reigning King of England, King Charles. And um, it's an enormous house. It has 775 rooms, and it has the largest garden in London. And um, now imagine what would happen if I walked up to the gates of Buckingham Palace and I said to the guards there, um, I've decided I'm coming to live in the palace. Or how about this one? Here in Cape Town you have what's known as the, the very prestigious, the Royal Cape Golf Club. Anybody ever played golf there? No? I certainly haven't. It was established in 1885. It's the oldest golf course in Africa, actually. And apart from the 30,000 rand it costs just to join the golf club, the fees are astronomical. And also, you have to be approved. Your membership has to be approved by uh, a governing body. You can't just walk in there. And I imagine I drive up into the parking lot, I take my golf clubs out, and I walk up to the first tee, and I just put my, put my ball down to start playing. What do you think would happen? The truth is, friends, in each of these cases, I'm going to find that what I want to do and, and, and what I'm actually allowed to do is not going to happen, right? Um, I'm probably going to get arrested for being a crazy at Buckingham Palace saying I've decided to come and live there. And, uh, and no doubt at the Cape Royal Golf Club, I'll get marched out and kicked out quite unceremoniously, right? Um, why is that? Why do you think that is? And the truth is, because to live in Buckingham Palace, you have to be a member of the royal family. You can't just live there. You have to be a member of that family. And because only members of that golf club can use its facilities. Those who've been accepted by the governing body, those who've paid the, the entrance fees, those who've paid the, the annual membership fees, they're allowed to use those facilities. It has to do, everything about that has to do with credentials. Credentials. And without them, it's just not going to happen. As I've entitled today's sermon in Psalm 15, Heaven's Credentials. Heaven's Credentials. For those who are on the inside, who are already on the inside, they are there because they have a right to be there. Those who are living in Buckingham Palace are there because they have the right credentials, either because they were born with the right credentials, or in the case of the golf club, those who've achieved or paid for the right credentials, right? And it's with this idea of credentials in mind that King David asks the questions of Yahweh as we get to Psalm 15. So let's read together all five of the verses of this incredible psalm. The title, it's called A Psalm of David. It's actually part of verse 1 in the inspired Hebrew text. 
And it's better translated probably a psalm by David. So verse 1. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? And then this. He who walks blamelessly and works, works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word once again to us this morning. And as always, we pray that you would bless the reading and the study of it. May you open our hearts and our minds now to, as we look at the text and at what you're saying to us through it. May your spirit work in each of us to show us how we might apply the truths of this text to our lives so that we may go forth and live for you in a God-honoring way. We pray you bless this time. Precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now Psalm 15 has three parts. We see firstly the question in verse 1. And then from verse 2 through to the first part of verse 5, we see the answer. And then thirdly, in the latter part of verse 5, we see the promise. The, the question, the answer, the promise. And this follows a very common pattern in Hebrew poetry. And here in this psalm, Psalm 15, it starts off with two very similar questions that are asked, apparently rhetorical questions. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain. They're, they're two different questions, but they're essentially asking the very same thing. And we know this again is a very common feature of Hebrew poetry. It's a, it's, a, it's a device called parallelism. It's used to create effect. It's used to create uh, suspense. It's designed to catch your attention as you read it. And so as we look at these two questions, what do we see? Well, for one, we see two parallel verbs, sojourn and dwell. And these two verbs are used in such a way as to express the idea of asking for permission. In other words, O Yahweh, who will have the permission to sojourn in your tent? Or, O Yahweh, who, who, who will have permission to dwell on your holy mountain? Now, the verb translated as sojourn, as you know, means to stay in a place temporarily, or it has to do with aliens or strangers who, who settle in a land just temporarily. And then together with that, you have referenced the word tent. Tent. Now, one thing that's very common in Los Angeles where we are living while I'm finishing my, my studies at TMS, and I've seen a lot of it here in Cape Town as well, is homelessness. There's a lot of homelessness all around. And everywhere you drive, you see groups of tents that have been put up and people living there. And one knows that it's just a temporary dwelling. Now, whether you're homeless or whether you're taking your family to go camping for a weekend, the idea is the same. It's a temporary home in which you stay just for a period of time until you either go home or you've got to move to another place. 
And this is what we have here in verse 1. And the temporal nature of sojourn in reference to your tent takes us all the way back to the Exodus. It talks about the tent that the Israelites put up as they traveled through the desert, through the wilderness, the tent that God would be present in as He dwelt with them. This tent was the center of worship for the Israelites. It was called the tabernacle. I'm sure you've all heard of it. A temporary structure where the holy God of Israel would dwell with His people. And then in the next question, we also have the verb dwell. But the verb dwell has the same idea, of, but it expresses a greater level of permanence. In other words, it could be translated as to live amongst, or to inhabit, or to abide, or to stay, or to remain. There's a sense of just a longer time, a more permanent time. And in this question, the word dwell is made in reference to the holy mountain, in which, in, according to most commentators, refers to a place in Jerusalem called Mount Zion. Mount Zion, where ultimately the Ark of the Covenant would come and rest in the temple, the physical structure where Yahweh dwelled with His people on earth. The place which was central to all of worship for all of Israel. But what I want you to see, friends, is that the reference here to tent and to mountain are used figuratively because the emphasis that the psalmist is trying to make in this passage, in these two questions, is not on the place itself, but it has to do with the presence of God, with the presence of Yahweh, Holy God. To take this further into modern times, scholars suggest that the, the temporary sanctuary where Yahweh dwells today is in the church, in the hearts of believers, as the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells within you. And the permanent sanctuary, making reference to heaven, where Yahweh dwells in all His fullness and all His glory, and where as believers we will one day be for all eternity. Keep those two thoughts in the back of your mind as we go through this. But the idea that's being asked here in both of these questions, is who may enter into the presence of a holy God. Now, for those of you who know anything about Hebrew poetry, you'll know that the use of rhetorical questions, um, whenever this tool is used, it's, it's done to bring about emphasis, to create a dramatic effect, something that's going to grab the reader's attention and make you sit up and think. And of course, in a rhetorical question, the, the answer that is expected, well, there is no answer. Who of you remember COVID? Do you remember COVID? It seems like it was so long ago, right? Um, don't you all miss those wonderful masks we used to wear? Um, and how about the lockdowns? It's like a long holiday, right? Awful time, crazy time that this world went through, just horrible. But, and I remember during those COVID times, how many people in their, in their misery, they would lament. And they would, they would say, when is this all going to end? Who have you heard that question asked? Oh, will we ever have a normal life again? And of course, those were rhetorical questions because no one had an answer to those questions. 
For the longest time, people were negative. They thought it was never going to end. Life would never be normal again. And, uh, and so when the question was asked, when's it all going to end, the, the perceived answer felt like it was never, never going to end. Even now, I'm not sure if we'll ever have a normal life again. The world changed in that time, right? Point is, nobody knew when it was going to end. And the same, the idea is the same here. As one reads these questions, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? In other words, who has the right or the permission to enter into and stay in the presence of a holy God? Our natural response is, well, no one. No one may sojourn in your tent. No one may dwell on your holy mountain. And immediately that thought catches our attention. And it does so because the thought and the idea scares us. Why? Because suddenly we get the idea that nobody is able to enter into the presence of God. Because from God, from Adam... Every person born of a man and a woman is born sinful. And the, sin of sta the stain of sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. And so immediately, obviously, the question that's asked is, what about me? What about me? And despite the sense of, of these being rhetorical questions in verse 2 to 5, we get David's answers. To his own rhetorical questions. It's an odd thing to do. But let's think about this for a minute. And the grammar here is key to this text. The grammar is key. We have what, what is known as an interrogative pronoun. The pronoun who. It's followed by the perfect verbs, verbs of sojourn and dwell. And so what that means is it doesn't specifically ask who is the person that may enter in there? It's talking about what kind of person is able to enter into God's presence. What kind of character does he have? Does he have? And then what David does is he gives us ten characteristics of a person who would enter into the presence of Yahweh. So let's look at them briefly. Firstly, verse 2. The person who enters into God's presence walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks the truth. And what we have there are what's known as three positive verbal adjectives. They describe the character of such a person. And of course, you know that the idea of walking is the idea of how you live your life. But there's more to it than that because the use of the verbal adjective here has this idea of a continuous, habitual action. So the, the person who can enter into the presence of Yahweh, this person's life is habitually and continuously blameless, innocent. He's free from evil. He's habitually integrous. He's habitually and continuously flawless in every way. These are translations of the word Hebrew word for blameless. Friends, this is a very high standard of perfection, right? It's a standard of perfection that's associated with righteousness. It's a standard of perfection that's associated with a holy God. It's the same as when Matthew 
uh, when Jesus says in Matthew 5 verse 8, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That person who can enter into the presence of God, how he lives, in other words, his walk and everything he does, in other words, his works, his walk and his works are marked by habitual, perfect righteousness. Not only that, it's constant, continuous. And as I, I think of that, I ask myself, and I'll ask you the question, does anybody right here, right now, meet that criterion? I certainly don't, <laughs> that's for sure. And then there's his speech. We know that that person's speech, one's speech is something that's rooted deep in your thoughts and in your heart, right? Luke 6.45 says, for his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. Here in Psalm 15, the person who would enter into the presence of Yahweh, their speech is continuously and habitually truthful and pure. It reflects who he is on the inside, his internal character. Friends, those who would enter into the presence of God are continuously upright in character and sincere in how they speak. Verse 3 continues, it says, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. And the first thing, as you look at that, what immediately pops up to us here are those three negatives, right? You see them there. Not, nor, nor. We started with three positive descriptions of the person who may enter into God's presence, and now we have almost the antithesis of those in these three negatives. But more than that, similar to the continuous and habitual nature of those positive characteristics, the use of these three negatives has the same idea of permanence and continuance. Saying that such a person who's able to enter the presence of God will never, ever do any of these things. The person who does not slander with his tongue is one who speaks truthful of other people. It shows that he, in his heart, he has no evil intent against another person. This person never ever says anything bad about anybody else because in his heart he's a righteous person. He will do nothing that might cause pain to someone else. He's righteous. He has one thing in his mind, and that is the good of his neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 simply says, love your neighbor. That's in the heart of this person. He lives by it. I'm reminded of the good Samaritan in Luke 10. And then still in verse 3 it says, nor does he take up reproach against his friends. Now, what is a, what is a reproach? A reproach is like a, a cutting remark. It's a, it's a remark that bites. It's designed to hurt. It's sharp criticism. It's a personal attack against someone else. It's, it's not very different from slander, but it has one major difference. Because the Hebrew term for reproach is far weightier than the English. It carries with it a sense of social shame. And so to, to utter a, a reproach against a neighbor is to say something of them that will socially shame them 
to the extent that it destroys their reputation, to the extent that in the community that they're in, they can no longer interact socially or they can operate as normal in that community. It robs them of the basic structures of communal life. That's a harsh thing to do. These are never, never characteristics of the person who enters the presence of God. Verse 4, we carry on. It says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. A reprobate. What is a reprobate? A reprobate is one who perpetually does evil. Every minute of every day, his heart is filled with evil. It's all he wants to do. He's a particularly vile and horrible and despicable person, an enemy of God. And he's the polar opposite of those who are God-fearing, those who bring glory to Christ, those who love their neighbor. The one who despises the repro uh, reprobate avoids their company. He avoids the influence of these evil and vile persons. And in honoring the God-fearing, he seeks their companionship and their positive influence. Now, this may sound to you off the bat like a very self-righteous attitude to have. I mean, after all, didn't Jesus come and sit with those very people, the despicable and the vile? But friends, the nuance that's here in this passage has to do with a very serious societal value that's at stake. Because what verse 4 is saying is that the type of person who may enter God's presence is expected to reject the behavior that God rejects and embrace the behavior that God embraces. Let me give you an example. If, if society ignores and, and tolerates or actively embraces violent or oppressive behavior, that society is sanctioning that behavior. If you turn a, a blind eye to the abuse of women and children, if you know about it, what you're doing is you're sanctioning that behavior. Life in God's community is about the love for and the welfare of others. You cannot just take care of your own little island, your own little home, your people. You have to look beyond that at the welfare of society. And you cannot tolerate the behavior that God hates. And so the person who enters into God's presence is one who constantly and continuously and habitually bears the duty of his neighbor. And he treats with respect and love those who fear Yahweh and bring glory to God. 1 Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Simple as that. No words minced there, that's for sure. That describes this person. Does that describe you? I certainly try, but the Lord knows, and my wife knows, I fail often. Verse 4 then ends with, He swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does that mean? Swears to his own hurt and does not change. Friends, it's, it's not a sin to swear an oath. We do it when we stand up in front of 
a, a church of people to get married. We make an oath before God. The righteous do swear oaths, but the difference is the righteous will never ever go back on their oath, even if it's painful. The righteous won't change their mind to avoid unexpected painful outcomes. The righteous will keep their word, even if it means they have to suffer loss. Because to take an oath and not to keep it would be to take the name of Yahweh in vain. Because the only one before whom you can make an oath is before the God of heaven. It's better not to take an oath than to break it. Right? People easily make oaths today. They, they easily break them too. The divorce rate itself is testimony to how easily people break oaths. The person, the righteous person, the person that Psalm 15 speaks of is the one who obeys the Bible, who obeys the instructions in it, and lives to keep every word of it. That's a righteous person. And finally, verse 5, it says, He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the, against the innocent. And once again, we have these double negatives, once again indicating that these are things that the righteous will never, ever do. Verse 5, the beginning says that the righteous do not put out their money with interest. Literally, this means they don't put out their money with a bite. Now, charging interest on a loan is not wrong. It's not sinful. But in Bible times, that was normally associated with exploitation and with abuse, where those who had would abuse those who didn't. They would charge exorbitant amounts of interest like loan sharks today do. And for this reason, the Hebrew law prevented loans with interest to fellow Hebrews, Israelites. You were allowed to charge interest in business transactions with foreigners, but you were not allowed to charge a fellow Hebrew interest. But more than that, what this means here as well, is that it applies to helping people in need. If there are those who are in financial need, those who are able to help them must do so without taking advantage of those people by charging interest. The righteous must give to those in need. And here it gets tough for everyone, right? This is a hard thing for us. Because not apart from charging any interest, the text indicates that giving like this should be done without any further thought of recognition or favor or respect from anybody. In fact, in some cases where the circumstances uh, demanded it, such giving must be done even without expectation of being repaid. Because by asking for repayment, it's biting them because they just don't have the money. That's what it means. Put out money with a bite. Tough one. Are you that person? Are you able to do that? Are you willing to do that? I think everyone struggles with some of those ideas. Verse 5 also adds that the righteous don't take bribes 
nothing has changed, friends, in all of human history. Justice has to be preserved in the land. And to take a bribe against an innocent would be to pervert the course of justice. It's as simple as that. No one can take a bribe or pay a bribe or pervert justice in any way or through any form of unjust gain and expect to be welcomed into the presence of a holy God. Makes sense, doesn't it? You can't think that you can pay a bribe and be welcomed into the fellowship with the righteous judge of the whole universe. There are many different types of perversion of justice against the innocent. Showing partiality to the rich, failing to be a truthful witness in court. These are all things that James warns us about. These are sins. Showing favoritism to someone with the intent of gaining something from them. That's sinful. And as, as we consider these ten characteristics of those who would enter the presence of Yahweh, there's an elephant in the room, right? Because the elephant in the room begs the question, am I this kind of person? And the answer to that, of course, is definitely not. So who's David referring to here as he gives these answers? Who's he talking about? And this answer has caused a lot of debate among scholars. There are very definitely two camps on this issue. The one camp holds that, similar to the Beatitudes given by Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 5, the one camp holds that this psalm has nothing to do with how to get into heaven, but has everything to do with the character and the quality of those who are already inside. They have the, the, the credentials to be there. They meet these standards. They're in heaven already. The Levitical priests, the worshippers, they hold that Psalm 15 has nothing to do with how to become a child of God or how to become a Christian, but has everything to do with a picture of a man or a woman who is a person of God, who's a God-fearer, who's faithful to the Lord, who's already found in the presence of the Lord. In other words, what? Born-again believers. They hold that this is a picture of what a sanctified believer looks like. This is the aim of those who are born again. That is what you aspire to in sanctification. Someone who was saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, who was adopted into the family of God, who is living temporarily as a sojourner on this earth, who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who is subject to the continuous, loving, gracious, powerful, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and who will ultimately live in heaven for all eternity. And you know what? I absolutely agree with that camp. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. But then there's the other camp. Let me tell you about the other camp. The other camp says that this list was particular to the Old Testament times. 
And they said it had everything to do with the character and the conduct that was required of those who wanted to enter into the sanctuary. It's like a list of credentials required for entry. And by, by implication then, a list of righteous requirements, even today, for those who want to commune with God and enter in His presence. They hold that this list has everything to do with how to become a child of God. It has everything to do with how to become a Christian. And you know what? I absolutely agree with them too. So you ask, how can I agree with both? Don't they contradict each other? Well, yes, in a sense they do. But they're both right. So why did David write this psalm? And so let me give you the purpose statement for today. I believe that in the wisdom of God, Psalm 15 exists for two reasons. And here finally, as I said, is your propositional statement for today. Psalm 15, with its question and its answers and its promise, serves, number one, to motivate true believers to greater levels of godliness in sanctification. And number two, to encourage unbelievers to recognize their sinfulness, their inability to come into the presence of God, and their need for a Savior. And let me show you why. Watch this. Psalm 15, if you study it, you see that it's often referred to as a liturgy at the gate. A liturgy at the gate. It asks questions of those who may enter the sanctuary and provides the answer. So typically what would happen, there would be a gatekeeper at the sanctuary, whether it was at the tabernacle or whether it was at the temple. A gatekeeper would stand there, Levitical gatekeeper. <clears throat> and it was his task to remind worshippers of the righteous requirements of entry into the sanctuary. Okay? To remind them of the standards of holiness required to be in the presence of Yahweh. Very important job he had. And, and so what he would do is he would read there very loud for everyone there who's waiting to come inside, the Jews. He would read and say, who may enter into this temple? And then he would read these ten lists, these requirements. And we know that there are many more, but these seem to parallel the Ten Commandments to some extent. And we know that is the standard of righteousness, right? The Ten Commandments. And we think back to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And like him, uh, Israelite worshippers worked very hard every day of their lives not to break any of the Ten Commandments. You remember he was saying when Jesus questioned him, he said to him, I have kept all of those. Remember? But we know, as Jesus pointed out to us, that he failed in so many other areas. <clears throat> and so as soon as the worshiper would stand there and he'd hear these things being read out, <clears throat> he would suddenly come to terms with, uh-oh, I don't meet those standards. I've sinned. I'm not allowed to go inside. And so what did he have to do? What would that guy first have to do? The same way the rich young ruler, when, when Jesus exposed the sin of his heart, he turned around and he walked away saddened because he knew he was a sinner. 
And so when these worshipers stand there, they're reminded by that list that they cannot enter. Now you may ask, why can they not enter? Well, the truth is, friends, let's give you an example. As a kid, my father took us to the Castle of Good Hope. Who, who's been there? I'm sure most of you have been there, right? The, it's uh, the beautiful stone fortress down in, in the bottom of Cape Town. Um, I, I remember going there. I was just fascinated by this, this structure. I mean, it used to have a bakery and a church and shops and all kinds of things. People would live there while they were under attack. But at the same time, there was a system of policing and there were dungeons down below where they would put the prisoners in who had broken the law. And on that particular tour, I was, I was just a young boy. I must have been about seven or eight. They took us down into one of these dungeons. I don't know if anybody here has been in those dungeons. And it's got a big stone door. And the guy said to us, be warned, try and see your hand when you close, we close these doors. And as they shut that door, it just went completely dark, completely black. And I was fascinated by the fact that even doing that, I could not see one single thing. And it was actually frightening. It was fearful. It almost became claustrophobic. And I heard some of the ladies gasping, you know, in fear at this darkness. It was, it was oppressive. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the guy took a match and he struck the match. And there was light. And you could see. And the point is, what's amazing to me, even the smallest amount of light, just a match was enough to displace the darkness. Why? Friends, darkness and light cannot occupy the same space. It cannot occupy the same space. Why could the Israelite not enter the sanctuary? Because his sinfulness cannot occupy the same space as a holy God. Psalms like this one set the righteous standard, the holy standard for communion with God. If people wanted to be welcomed into the presence of God, they had to measure up to those righteous standards. And if they came thinking that they were perfect and that they were righteous, that they've done everything right, a psalm like that would reveal their sin to them and the worshiper would immediately remember that according to the law of Moses, what did they have to do? They had to confess their sins, they had to turn around and they had to go and make the appropriate sacrifices which would deem them okay. It would deem them fine. It would give them forgiveness. It would give them atonement for a period and it granted them enough to enter into the sanctuary of the Most Holy. And so friends, if you are not a true born-again believer for today, for you, that is the same thing. This list in Psalm 15 was written for you. It's written in order that you may recognize that you've missed the mark of righteousness. It's written for you because you cannot keep one single thing on this list. None of us can. We don't qualify. You, if you're not born again today, you have not got the right credentials to get into heaven. You may not enter the eternal dwelling of the Most High. 
You may not commune or even have a relationship with Yahweh. In fact, Ephesians tells us that you're a child of wrath. You're an enemy of God. And so, as you realize this, my prayer is that you, the next question that will come off your mouth is the same as the one asked by the Jews on the day of Pentecost when they approached the apostles and they said, what must we do to be saved? Well, as we said, the Israelites had to go and make a sacrifice for the atonement of their sins. And except for Christ who lived a perfect and a sinless life, so it is for everyone who was ever born. There's sacrifice needed for the atonement of sins. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so for everyone who's ever born of a man and a woman, a sacrifice must be made for the atonement of sin before any form of righteous requirement is met. Before we can be in the presence of Yahweh. But friends, for us today, there's a difference. For us, Hebrews 10.1 says that the law of Moses can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So what then? What now? How can I be made righteous? And for us, there's a but God. My favorite two words in the entire Bible. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God. Incredible. Being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Because no one is born with the qualifications to enter into His holy presence. And because no one is even capable of meeting that list in Psalm 15, or any of the Ten Commandments, or any other righteous standard, because of that, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He, that's God, made Him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And there it is, friends. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he became sin on our behalf so that we might have the right credentials to enter into the presence of God. He declares righteous those who through faith in Jesus repent of their sins, confess Him as Lord. And then for those, there's a promise. The end of verse 5. The promise. It says, He who does these things will never be shaken. The final answer to, the final part of the answer to the question posed in verse 1, who may sojourn and who may dwell, is the one who does these things, right? That's the answer. The one who does these things. What things? The ones who meet the standards of righteousness as defined by that list. The standard of righteousness that's defined by the standard of who God is. And for those of us who are declared righteous by God, who are born again, Paul says in Ephesians 6, God raised us up with Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 6. For us, Psalm 15 is saying that those who live this way as Christians, 
down to the last details, will not only abide in him, but will be secure in him. The righteous will not be shaken in their faith. They strive to live according to the list. They will both abide in the presence of Yahweh. They'll grow in his likeness. We'll grow from strength to strength to strength. For those on the outside of heaven right now, friends, there is a but God. His righteousness is available to you. And come what may, if you accept that, you too will not be shaken. You too will have an eternal dwelling in His holy and in His divine presence. May you turn your hearts to Him today. Amen. Let's pray. Father, whenever we are faced with your holiness and we are faced with the righteousness of Christ, when we are faced with the righteous standards of holiness as, as required by a holy God, we are immediately confronted with the reality that we are sinners. We are born sinful. We are born separated from God. We are born enemies of God. We are born as children of wrath. We do not have the right credentials to be in your presence. And so it's because of that that our hearts are filled with gratitude and worship and praise and adoration and will be so for all eternity because for us there was a but God. Because when approached with that standard of righteousness, recognizing that we cannot make it, you made the sacrifice for us. You enabled us to stand before you righteous with no guilt and no penalty. And we'll dwell in your presence for all eternity. All we can do is thank you and worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.